Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 15. Before we jump into the new material for this week, one real quick announcement. We have a quick addition at the end of this week's podcast episode. Yeah, we've been recording for a while, and Jeff and I occasionally have some really funny outtakes. We're going to do our best to clip some of the funnier ones and throw them in at the end. With that, let's get started with the rapid review. How about some ID topics for this week? All right, here's a quick throwback to episode 12. What's the most common cause of a painless, clean-based, sharply defined penile ulcer? You're describing a chancre, which is seen in syphilis. It's caused by treponema pallidum. Don't forget the two other painless penile lesions, the small, shallow ulcer of LGV caused by chlamydia, and the red, beefy ulcer caused by granuloma inguinale. Great. And going back two episodes before that to episode 10, what ocular antibiotics would be appropriate for the treatment of a corneal abrasion? For a corneal abrasion, erythromycin ointment or ciprofloxacin drops can be used. And don't forget to update their tetanus vaccination if indicated. Perfect. Let's back up one more episode to episode number nine. What valve is most commonly implicated in native valve endocarditis? In native valve endocarditis, you should think most about mitral valve followed by the aortic valve. And one more quick question from that same episode. What's the most common bacterial cause of pneumonia in alcoholics? In alcoholics, strep pneumo is the most common cause, although the incidence of Klebsiella is higher in that population. All right, I think that's enough review for today. Let's get on with the new material. All right, you're up first, Jeff. Which of the following is the most common infection associated with erythema multiforme? Is it A, Borrelia burgdorferi, B, Haemophilus influenza type B, C, Hepatitis C, or D, Herpes simplex? The answer here is definitely choice D, Herpes simplex virus. I just remember that being right, but I don't exactly remember why. Can you walk me through it? Sure. Let's first go over where erythema multiforme is. Erythema multiforme is a skin condition characterized by fixed cutaneous eruptions. The lesions are commonly distributed on the hands, feet, and extensor surfaces. The exact pathophysiology is thought to be related to host-specific cell-mediated immune response. It's associated with numerous infections, but HSV is the most common. That makes sense. Let me quickly run through the other answer choices as well. Borrelia brigdorferi, which causes Lyme's disease, that's associated with erythema migrans, not erythema multiforme. Haemophilus influenza type B, that's just not associated with erythema multiforme. Suspect this bug only in questions where the patient is explicitly not vaccinated against it. And lastly, choice C, hepatitis C, that's usually associated with erythema multiforme, but only in the setting of active treatment with telaprevir. Do you recall the treatment for erythema multiforme while we're talking about it? Erythema multiforme is a self-limiting condition. Treat the underlying condition if it is known. In addition, oral antihistamines, steroids, and analgesics may also be helpful. Great. You're up next here. Which of the following patients is at highest risk for developing a pneumothorax? Is it A, a 33-year-old woman with AIDS, B, a 45-year-old man with COPD who's maintained on inhaled steroids, C, a 56-year-old obese woman with sleep apnea who uses BiPAP at night, or D, a 65-year-old man with heart failure? The answer here is definitely choice B, a 45-year-old man with COPD on inhaled steroids. He's on chronic steroids, so his lung disease is pretty bad. Patients with underlying lung disease are at a higher risk for secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. Perfect. And don't forget that COPD accounts for about 70% of cases of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. Additionally, it's important to remember that the incidence of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces is almost three times higher in men than it is in women. All excellent points. The other answers here simply aren't great alternatives. Patients with AIDS are at a somewhat increased risk, and pneumothorax can be seen secondary to PCP pneumonia. Similarly, in choice C, an obese woman on BiPAP, 
The BiPAP does put her at increased risk, as it does apply a positive pressure, but both of these are relatively small in comparison to the COPD patient. And heart failure is just not really associated with pneumothoraces. Awesome. And that question was a bit short, so I'll load up the next one for you as well. A 72-year-old man presents with chest heaviness, diaphoresis, and shortness of breath. His EKG demonstrates complete heart block. Acute blockage of which of the following coronary arteries is most likely to be causing this dysrhythmia? Is it A, the left anterior descending artery, B, the left circumflex artery, C, the left coronary artery, or D, the right coronary artery? The correct answer here has to be choice D, the right coronary artery, since a branch of the right coronary artery supplies the AV node in 70-80% to of the population. Infarcts of the RCA can lead to AV nodal dysfunction. Right. In choice A, the LAD, that supplies the anterior wall of the ventricle and two-thirds of the septum, including the bundle branches, so that's just not right. Choice B, the left circumflex artery, that supplies the high lateral wall of the LV and occasionally parts of the posterior wall as well, so that's also not right. Choice C, the left coronary artery, that could be the answer, but it only supplies the AV node in a minority of cases. Although kind of related to this question, do you remember what vessel supplies the sinoatrial node? Well, both can. The right coronary artery supplies the SA node in 55% of patients, and the left coronary artery supplies it in 45% of patients. You're up next. Which of the following can decrease levels of brain natriuretic peptide? Is it A, elderly age, B, female sex, C, kidney failure, or D, obesity? I don't think the pathophysiology is really understood, but I remember that D, obesity, can decrease BNP levels. So I'll go with choice D, obesity. You're absolutely correct. The exact pathophysiology is not well understood, but BNP is less helpful in the setting of increased BMI. Remember that an elevated BNP is consistent with heart failure, but doesn't alone diagnose it. However, a BNP of less than 100 effectively eliminates heart failure as an acute cause of dyspnea. In addition to heart failure, there are a number of other conditions that are also associated with an elevated BNP. The list is a bit long, but I think it's important, so get ready. That's renal failure, both acute and chronic, hypertension, COPD, pulmonary embolism, ARDS, older age, female sex, cirrhosis, hyperthyroidism, sepsis, and lastly, chemotherapy. Those are all associated with an elevated BNP. Right, and in case you missed it, choices A, B, and C, elderly age, female sex, and kidney failure, were all on the list you just heard. So choice D was definitely the way to go here. Great point. You're up next. A 55-year-old woman presents to the ED for swelling of her lips and tongue. She recently started a new antihypertensive medication. Which of the following is the direct mediator for her condition? Is it A, angiotensin, B, bradykinin, C, C1 esterase inhibitor, or D, histamine? Swelling of the tongue and lips after starting a new antihypertensive? This has to be angioedema. So the answer here would be choice B, bradykinin. That's correct. But can you walk us through this since this type of biochemistry isn't something we talk about every day? Sure. So the most common cause of drug-induced angioedema is due to an adverse reaction from ACE inhibitors. When patients take an ACE inhibitor, bradykinin is not metabolized to its inactive forms. Therefore, it's thought that the increased level of bradykinin is responsible for the angioedema that we see. Angioedema can result in airway compromise, but don't forget that less commonly, it can also cause GI compromise. Right. And don't confuse this for hereditary angioedema. Hereditary angioedema is caused by a deficiency or a dysfunction of the C1 esterase inhibitor. Such cases of angioedema are usually precipitated by stress or trauma. There's also a far less common acquired angioedema that appears later in life. It's also due to a deficiency or dysfunction of C1 esterase inhibitor, but in these cases, it's not due to a genetic cause. 
The exact etiology is unknown, and it's exceedingly rare, so don't stress too much about it. And knowing the exact underlying pathophysiology here is pretty important, as it has key treatment implications. If someone is experiencing ACE inhibitor-mediated angioedema, the treatment is supportive, with of course cessation of that medication. Often such patients will need an ENT evaluation for laryngeal edema. For patients with hereditary angioedema, the treatment is usually replacing the C1 esterase inhibitor with recombinant agents if they're available, or with FFP if that's the only thing that's available. Exactly. Many also advocate for administration of the standard therapies for anaphylaxis. It's not proven, but in the setting of possible airway compromise, it's difficult to sit back when we have low-risk interventions that might be helpful. You're up next. Which of the following signs of acute arterial occlusion require emergent surgical intervention? Is it A, pain, B, pallor, C, paralysis, or D, poikilothermia? All tempting answers here, and in fact only 58% of Roche Review users got this right, but paralysis in the setting of an acute arterial occlusion requires an emergent surgical intervention. That's absolutely correct. Remember the six P's of acute arterial occlusion. Paresthesia, pallor, pulselessness, poikilothermia, paralysis, and pain out of proportion to exam. And just in case you don't remember, poikilothermia is the inability to regulate your body temperature. Of the six P's, both limb paralysis and paresthesias require emergent surgical intervention, regardless of the etiology of the occlusion. Right. An acute arterial occlusion may be caused either by embolic disease or by an in-situ thrombosis. Although there's no hard and fast rules, paresthesias and paralysis typically indicate more advanced disease and require emergent surgery to avoid loss of the limb. In cases of non-limb-threatening ischemia, you have a bit more time to pursue further testing to differentiate between acute embolism versus in-situ thrombosis. Embolisms should be managed by embolectomy, whereas in-situ thrombosis may respond to anticoagulation. And that's really important here, since in the setting of in-situ thrombosis, surgery may actually worsen the prognosis. Can you name the most common source of arterial emboli while we're talking about it? Sure. Left ventricular thrombi formation from an MI is actually the most common source of arterial emboli. Nailed it. And I've got one last quick question for you since we have a little bit of time here. A three-year-old boy presents with Strider. His mother states that he was eating a grape and suddenly started choking. The patient has normal vital signs except for an increased respiratory rate. Physical examination reveals an anxious child who is able to speak with Strider. Which of the following managements is most likely indicated? Is it A, back blows, B, emergent ENT consultation, C, Heimlich maneuver with patient supine, or D, needle cricothyrotomy? The correct answer here is choice B, emergent ENT consultation, as this infant has a partial airway obstruction. Exactly. This is the classic presentation. Airway obstruction is commonly caused by round foods like hot dogs, peanuts, grapes, popcorn, etc. As they pass the subglottic space, they usually lodge in the more vertical bronchus, with a preference for the right main stem, as that's more vertical than the left. Of course, larger objects may also get stuck in the trachea. And in such cases, you'd expect dyspnea, strider, drooling, and even cyanosis. And positioning is key here. It's important to keep agitation to a minimum and to keep the patient in a position of comfort. Position changes could convert a partial obstruction to a complete obstruction. And as you mentioned, the solution here is an emergent ENT consultation for direct visualization, preferably in the operating room, with subsequent removal of the object. If a child were to present, you should prepare for direct laryngoscopy as well as needle cricothyrotomy while you await ENT's arrival. And although you're bound to be excited, remember to not agitate the child and keep them as comfortable as possible while you set everything up. The other answers here are all good answers in slightly different situations. Choice A, back blows, that's for choking infants less than one year old. Choice C, maneuvering the patient to supine position and attempting the Heimlich, 
That's not correct, because as we already mentioned, changing to the supine position may convert a partial obstruction to a complete obstruction. And lastly, needle cricothyrotomy. While you need to be setting up for this immediately to prepare for the worst, it shouldn't be attempted until the less invasive maneuvers have failed. Perfect. And let's close this episode out with a rapid review. Herpes simplex virus is the most common infection associated with erythema multiforme. Hepatitis C can be associated with erythema multiforme, but that's usually in the setting of active treatment with teloprevir. COPD accounts for 70% of the cases of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. The incidence of secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces is three times higher in men than it is in women. In the setting of acute onset heart block due to coronary occlusion, suspect a right coronary artery occlusion as this supplies the AV node in the majority of patients. Obesity may lead to a spuriously low BNP. A BNP less than 100 can rule out heart failure, but an elevated BNP is not necessarily indicative of failure. In ACE inhibitor-mediated angioedema, an accumulation of bradykinin leads to swelling. The swelling typically occurs in the face, but can also lead to complications in the GI tract. Hereditary angioedema is caused by a deficiency or dysfunction of C1 esterase inhibitor. Episodes are typically precipitated by stress or trauma. With ACE inhibitor-mediated angioedema, the treatment is cessation of the agent and supportive care. An ENT consult may be needed. For hereditary angioedema, the treatment is with C1 esterase inhibitor replacement or with FFP if the inhibitor is unavailable. In the setting of an acute arterial occlusion, paralysis and paresthesias require more emergent surgical intervention. Such findings usually herald more advanced disease. Don't forget the six Ps of acute arterial occlusion. Paresthesia, paralysis, pallor, pulselessness, poikilothermia, and pain out of proportion to exam. Acute arterial embolisms should be managed with embolectomy, whereas in situ thrombosis may respond to anticoagulation. Left ventricular thrombus formation after an MI is the most common source of arterial emboli. In cases of partial airway obstruction in children, set up for both direct laryngoscopy as well as cricothyrotomy while awaiting ENT arrival for foreign body removal in the operating room. Avoid agitating the child as changing positions may convert a partial obstruction to a complete obstruction. So that wraps up episode 15. As you guys begin to ramp up your studying, don't forget to let us know if you want us to review a particular question by writing Roshcast in the submit feedback form associated with each question in the question bank. Feel free to also include more details about the specific parts or points that you want us to go over. Just two weeks until the in-service. Talk to you guys next week. For corneal abrasion, you could use either erythromycin ointment or ciprofloxacin drops. And don't forget to give tetanus. Perfect. Let's back. <laughs> don't forget to give tetanus. <laughs> for corneal abrasion, erythromycin ointment or ciprofloxacin drops. For corneal abrasion, erythromycin. For corneal abrasion, erythromycin ointment or ciprofloxacin drops can be used. Don't forget to update their tetanine vac. That makes sense. And let me run through the other answer choices quickly too. Brillia Brigdorf, Brigdorfery? That makes sense. I'll run through the other answer choices too. Brillia Brigdorfery? Is it Fory? Is it fair? That makes sense. I'll run through the other chance. That makes sense. And let me quickly run through the other answer choices as well. Borrelia Brigdorferi, which causes Lyme's disease, that's associated with erythema migrans, not erythema migrant. Sure. Let's first go over what erythema multiforme is. Erythema multiforme is a skin condition characterized by fixed cutaneous eruptions, and it has a variable erythematous experience. <laughs>